Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here to worship Christ with us. Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here to worship Christ with us. A sabbatical that will take him away from regular church ministry over the summer. Uh, it's much, much, much deserved, much needed. The, the average lifespan of a Southern Baptist pastor is four years, give or take a bit. Uh, Daniel's been on our staff for 13 years. So uh, he'll be away with his family some this summer. He'll be doing some study and reading and work to restore his soul. And so you might want to be in special prayer for the Creswells uh, this summer as they kind of recoup and restore and regroup. And uh, thank God for Corey and others who are going to step up and lead in, in Daniel's absence. But I'd like to, let's just take a moment right now and let's, let's pray. As we get ready to open the word, pray for the Creswells and for the receiving of the scriptures today. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our, our brother Daniel and for his bride, Lindsay, and their kids. Daniel's a joy to us all. And uh, while he'll be greatly missed this summer, we know that, um, that you will restore and refuel him and bring him back, if possible, even more full of Creswellian joy in the fall to lead and shepherd and encourage us. And we look forward to that, but we pray now that you would protect his family as they travel, that there'd be a sweetness to their relationships this summer. Lord, especially that Daniel would draw near to you and, and his love for you and worship of you would grow all the more. Um, Lord, we pray those same things for us now as we open up the word. Uh, may this important truth drive deep in our souls. Help us, grant us faith to receive it. We need your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if, if you like magic, you probably know these guys, uh, Penn and Teller. They're kind of f famous magicians. The big guy, his name is Penn Jillette, and he is not only a magician, he is an outspoken um, atheist. And uh, he tells a story, and you'll, you may get to watch this video clip in your small group this week. And he tells a story about uh, a guy coming up to him after one of his shows. He says he's a big guy. And he comes up to him and he gives him, gives to Penn, a Gideon's New Testament Psalms and Proverbs and speaks to him of Christ. And Penn talks about this in this video and this is what he says. He, he calls it proselytizing. Remember, he's an atheist. He says this. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, that is, evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, he says, how much do you have to, here, I'll let you read it with me, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. He says, and this is more important than that. And so we, as people who do believe, that what waits us at the end of this life is yet eternal life, whether that would be in heaven or in a place called hell, um, 
We are today beginning our third series of our third circle in our series of great devotions that are to mark our life. We've talked about our love for God, our love for the church, and today we turn towards loving our neighbor. And to, to do that, we want to think about those two great categories this week and next week of hell and, and heaven. And we'll begin by focusing on hell and just thinking about what happens to someone when you reject Christ. What, what do the scriptures teach happens to someone who chooses actively or passively to bear their own sin? Where does that lead? And as we often say, your sin will take you places you don't want to go. And that's definitely true in this case. Because your sin, if it's not placed on Christ in faith, takes you to a place the Bible calls hell. And Jesus connects our sin and that destiny, in this verse when he says in Mark chapter 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than with two hands, rather, to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So we're going to think together about exactly what this thing we call hell is like, what the Bible teaches us that it's like. There are a lot of different ideas about hell out there. The Greeks used to say it was lying face down in a swamp of mud and frogs, uh, which some of you may appreciate. Um, Woody Allen says it's like Manhattan at rush hour. Somebody says it's like a long line, and you wait and wait and wait in line, and when you get to the front, they send you to the back of the line endlessly. Well, the, the Bible has a very different and honestly much more graphic portrayal of what hell is like. And let, to get started in that, let's look at the context for this statement of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You read those descriptions and you realize that Whatever hell is, it is much, much, much worse than standing in line and then going to the end of the line. Um, I, think, I think our friend Woody Allen has it all wrong when he says it's like Manhattan traffic. And so also do the Jehovah Witnesses who teach that there is no hell. In their writings, they say, who's responsible for the God-defaming doctrine of a hell of torment? They say the promulgated promulgator is Satan. His purpose in introducing it has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and to make them hate God. I like Dorothy Sayers. She's a British writer who said, the doctrine is hell is not some medieval idea. It is Christ's. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. 
The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah, and it was Christ who emphatically used it. One cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. And Jesus, as we're going to see today, warns us again and again and again about this thing called hell, and he describes it vividly. And I want to just underscore three things that the the scriptures teach us about hell, um, especially the writings of of Jesus uh, or about Jesus. The first is simply this, that hell is punishment. It is the just punishment for our sins. And Paul writes in Romans 2, he says that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The idea is that it is the just punishment for our sins and the shape that that punishment takes according to the descriptions, especially the language Jesus uses, is almost unspeakable. Listen to how Jesus describes um, the judgment that waits those who bear their own sin. In Matthew chapter 8, he says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, he says, so it will be at the close of the age The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When Jesus describes hell, he uses imagery like fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness that describes unspeakable suffering and anguish. And these images represent judgment and sadness, isolation and agony. And some people wonder, well, are these literal images or are they symbolic? And I like the way a guy named Jonathan Gibson thinks of it in his article on on this subject. He says, by their very nature, images and symbols are always less than their reality. A road sign with a picture of children crossing the road encourages slow and careful driving because it points to the greater reality of children in the vicinity. He says, so it is with the biblical imagery of hell. The images should not lessen our view of hell. They should heighten it. They should not make hell less dreadful. If anything, they ought to make it even more terrifying since the images are less than the reality. As one writer put it, if hell is not fire, it is something infinitely worse. It portrays a suffering so great that the scriptures say it is torment. Hell is the presence of the greatest of sufferings. It's not something to be glibly joked about. Um, People who flippantly say things like Ted Turner famously did a number of years ago in a USA Today interview. He said, I don't want anybody to die for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, then so be it. 
Jesus would say to Ted, better to have your eye gouged out or your hand cut off than to face the suffering of hell. It's, it's that severe in the language of the New Testament. So hell is punishment in the form of the presence of the greatest of sufferings and the absence of all comfort for those sufferings. Um, there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about a rich man and his poor servant named Lazarus. Maybe you're familiar with it. We'll drop in midway and we find that the poor man named Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, Jesus' story is not primarily designed to teach us about the afterlife. But at the same time, it would be really odd if the way he portrays the afterlife has no correspondence to reality. And here Jesus is, is showing that there is even the small comfort, like a drop of water on the tip of a finger, is not available um, in the judgment of, that one experiences apart from Christ. So hell is the absence of all that is good, where there's no comfort from sorrow and suffering. Okay. Now, the reason hell is what it is, is that hell is not just punishment, it's also banishment. It is the absence of God's presence to bless and to love. Um, Jesus uses this language in Matthew 25 when he says that God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me, away from the presence of God. Paul writes something similar in 2 Thessalonians uh, in this severe uh, language he uses here. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So away from the presence of the Lord. See, what makes hell hell is that God's love, His kindness, His mercy, His goodness is withheld from there. Those who go there are forever separated from Him and the blessings that accompany His presence. Now, it doesn't mean that God is not present in hell. It means He is not present there to bless and to love and to care for, that the only experience of God there is His wrath and judgment untempered by His love. Jesus writes about it, in, or speaks of it in John 3, rather. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, the language that it uses, honestly, is, is terrifying. Um, I was listening to portions of the book of Revelation this week, and the wrath of God is terrifying there. 
Let, let me read just a sample or two to you. This is from Revelation 14, where an angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Earlier in Revelation, back in chapter 6, it describes some others who encounter God's wrath. It says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In a word, the wrath of God in Scripture is unbearable. And yet, it must be born forever. See, hell is punishment by banishment forever. And in recent days, there are a number of uh, Bible scholars who have really struggled with this idea that hell could last forever. And so they have leaned on scriptures such as this one um, in Matthew chapter 10. says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fill him, fear him rather who can destroy both body, soul and body in hell. And one writer says it would seem strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are not, in fact, destroyed. So they believe what's called, in something called annihilationism or conditional immortality. That is not that hell goes on forever, but it may go on for a season and then they are destroyed. Um, that language of destruction would mean destroyed. Now, the more traditional view um, is that hell is eternal, and it's based on language like this in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same language, the same description, both of eternal life and of eternal punishment. Another example would be Revelation 20, where the devil had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So, if you were to root through our church's doctrinal statement, we don't have a doctrinal statement on hell, but we do ascribe to something called the Baptist Faith and Message, which you can find online, and since we're all part of a Baptist uh, gathering here, it's a good thing to read from time to time. There you read this language, that the unrighteous will be consigned to hell the place of everlasting punishment. Um, as Thomas Brooks put it hundreds of years ago, he says, the eternity of hell is the hell of hell. Okay. And so, hell then is punishment for our sins by banishment from the mercy of God that lasts forever. Okay. How is that supposed to affect us? Okay. 
And I'd say, first, it's to cause us to fear and to trust and even to love God more. Let me walk through each of those with you because it's designed to do those three things. This teaching, especially as Jesus taught it, is designed to help us fear, trust, and love God more. Um, the reality of hell, it teaches us to fear God, and fearing God in the Scripture is a virtue. It's a good and wise thing. And Jesus said in that verse we looked at earlier, do not fear those who cure the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So that the reality of hell is to help us revere and fear God. Okay? To fear His judgment. To make sure that we are right with Him. It means that what God thinks of us, His appraisal of our life, has to matter more than anyone else. You know, you're concerned about what your boss thinks, right? Because he could fire you. And you're concerned about what your boyfriend or your girlfriend thinks because they could dump you, right? You're concerned about what your teacher thinks. They could flunk you. You're concerned about what the police officer thinks. He could arrest you. And we should be supremely concerned about what God thinks because according to Jesus, God wields hell. He could send you to hell. So our great concern is, what is God's appraisal of my life? And, and you notice that Jesus indicates that God is in control of hell, not the devil. The devil is merely a prisoner there. And so we should fear God above all others. What He thinks should matter most to us, we should fear Him, obey Him, and honor Him supremely above all others. The doctrine of hell exalts God above all others in His power. Fear Him. But it also teaches us to trust in Him in a very specific way, especially concerning His, his justice. And Romans 12 simply says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this means I'm free from taking justice into my own hands. Okay. I don't know, have you ever been robbed? Like literally robbed? Um, I think I've shared with you this story before when I was working as a civil engineer in downtown Fort Worth, not long after we were married, uh, my practice was, over my lunch hour, I'd go to the Y and I would work out. It's close to my office downtown. So I'd go to the Y and work out, put my stuff in the locker, lock it up, go upstairs, uh, get all jaked up, as we say, uh, get all pumped up, and I, would, and, I'd, and I would come down. And I remember coming down one day after I'd been working out, and uh, this guy, a couple rose down from me. He says, hey, somebody stole my stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, oh you should have locked your locker. And I looked, and the lock was open on my locker. And my stuff was gone. My wedding band, uh, an antique pocket watch that was a wedding gift from my, my wife, was stolen. Guy had gone through, popped every lock in the, in the locker room while we were working out, stole everybody's stuff. And so I start to I can't get this out of my. I start to have revenge fantasies, right? 
I'm thinking, I'm, I, I imagine coming down, you know, all kind of pumped up, all jaked up, right, coming down after working out, and I catch the guy, and there are various scenarios where this plays out in my mind. See, what, what Jesus is teaching us here is that God's sure, ultimate um, justice frees us from the shadow boxing of, of fantasy revenge, or even more so, actual revenge. We can leave that to God and forgive those who have wronged us, knowing that justice will come. It's in His hands, in the severest of forms, if it's needed. A greater, more severe, more just justice than I could ever have extracted. The reality of hell sets me free so that I can forgive. Now, are you free to forgive those who have wronged you? stolen from you, defamed you, betrayed you, hurt you. See, trusting to God that He will work out justice, of which ultimately it may find its expression in eternal judgment, frees us. He will one day right all wrongs. And the doctrine of hell teaches us we, we should fear God and we can trust God. It also teaches us we can love God. God. And I know that sounds odd at first. How can a doctrine like hell help us love God, a God who wields hell? And it works like this. We love Him because of His rescue of us from this nightmarish eternity, which we justly deserve. This is how Paul describes Jesus in his letter, 1 Thessalonians. He says, talks about waiting for His Son from heaven, who is Christ, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All that hell is, all that is symbolized by the language of the New Testament, the darkness, the isolation, the agony, the suffering, Christ rescues us from it all by suffering in our place and conquering death and hell by His resurrection on the third day. And so we love Him back, okay? He has, in a sense, borne hell for us when on the cross He was ripped apart from His Father, bore separation from His Father because of our sins. As some have said, we love Him because He has experienced hell for us, so we would not have to. See, hell really is the necessary backdrop that makes mercy beautiful. Okay. Kevin DeYoung says, uh, we need God's wrath in order to understand what mercy means. Divine mercy without divine wrath is meaningless. When we know we are objects of wrath, condemned already and should have faced hell as God's enemies were it not for undeserved mercy. It's only then that we can sing from the heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that saved from hell a wretch who deserved hell like me. Okay. We love God because of His mercy that He gives to us. And so the doctrine of hell is intended to help us fear and trust and love God more. 
It's also intended to motivate us to help rescue others. And there's a little expression in the little tiny book of Jude at the end of the New Testament that goes like this. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's that imagery of judgment, by snatching them out of the fire. We are to save others, rescue others. Think again with me of those words that, that Penn Jillette said. He says, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. He says, in this, eternal life is more important than that. There's a uh, theologian, his name is Martin Marty, and he says, uh, if people really believed in hell, they wouldn't be watching basketball or even TV preachers. They'd be out rescuing people. And while I, I think there's ample room for more in our life than just rescuing people, there's room for basketball in our lives. But all the same, I think he's on to something that if, if hell is real, shouldn't we be a bit more active than we are in rescuing people around us from it? People we work with, people that are in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our schools, on our teams that we care about? If hell is real, how ought that shape your relationships with those who are outside our faith? Personally, you and the people you know and care about. There's a really helpful paradigm that Rob Craig uh, put in a little uh, Bible study. Um, it goes like this, prayer, care, share. You. If you have friends that you love and care about who don't share your faith, you pray for them, you demonstrate the love of Christ for them by caring for them, and you share for them as God gives you the opportunity. You share about your faith. You share about who Christ is to you. And if you're in a small group and you haven't been through this study, it's called Pep Talk, and it walks through those three things. It'd be a great study for your small group this summer if you haven't done it um, recently. Um, but hell is intended to motivate us to rescue others. And the last thing I'll underscore that the scriptures indicate hell is to do, how it's supposed to affect us, is that it's intended to cause us to flee sin. Again, listen to Jesus' language we've been quoting. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, in Matthew 5, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, make sure that you stay out of hell. And the implication that integral to that is how you deal with your sin. And I know for those of us who follow Christ here, we're thinking, whew, I'm good on this, okay? I'm, I'm saved from this. I don't have to worry about this. And yet, at the same time, if sin is really the stuff of hell, and that's its ultimate goal, why would you want to partake 
of something that's ultimate fruit is eternal suffering, despair, and anguish cast out from the presence of the Lord. Plus, there's always this sobering teaching in Matthew 25 by Jesus where He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to judge and separate by His judgment. He says, then He will say to those who are on His left, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they will answer in shock, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Okay. There, there's going to be great surprise on that day. You don't want to be one of the ones who are surprised. I don't want you to be one of the ones who are surprised. So Jesus says, do whatever it takes to make sure you'll stay out of hell. And of course, that means being as certain as humanly possible of our faith in Christ. But it also means taking drastic measures to deal with our sin. Paul uses the word flee, flee sexual immorality, flee the evil desires of youth, flee idolatry, flee from all this, he says. Do whatever it takes to be free from sin that would drag you down to hell. Is there anything today that you need to be free of, that you need to cut it off so you can be free from that sin? Again, Jesus says, tear it out, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body would go in the hole. Jesus' teaching on hell is designed to help make sure that you and I stay out of it. Okay? And I suppose there could be two ways to do that. One would be to self-mutilate so that you can never sin. Okay? Not recommended. That is not what Jesus is recommending here, that you start lopping off body parts. Mercifully, there's another way. You can gain access to a greater righteousness than your own. Someone else who was willing to bear the penalty of your sin for you, and that is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. See, these two ways of thinking about how we enter God's mercy... Are the simplest way I've ever heard it told looks like this. Do versus done. All the religions of the world outside of Christianity say that you deal with your sin and enter God's favor by what you do. D-O. A classic example of this was an interview with Muhammad Ali back in the day. He said, one day we're all going to die and God is going to judge us, our good deeds and our bad deeds. And if the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. And if the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Now, there are a number of problems with that, but um, how do you ever know when you've done enough, when your good outweighs your bad? Uh, when you have sufficiently atoned for your sin... 
Um, what outweighs what? Does helping an old lady across the street really cancel looking at porn on the internet? How do you know? Okay. This is a system that offers no sure hope, and in fact, it offers no hope at all. In Romans 3, the scripture says that we can never do enough to atone for our own sin. And that's why Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Jesus has done what we could never do. He lived the perfect life and died on the cross to pay for all the wrongs that we have done. Okay. And Isaiah talked about this beautifully. He writes of the Messiah long before he came saying he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, so that's, those are the choices. What will you rely on? What you can do or what Christ has done? Um, Peter encourages us this way. He says that Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. And so today, God is inviting you to transfer your trust from being good enough, what you do, to what Christ has done for you in his life and his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection on the third day to newness of life. So for you, the question is, will you transfer your trust today to what Christ has done for you and follow him as your Lord? Avoiding hell is one of the great incentives to trust Christ. So how should this teaching about hell affect you personally? What would God have you do in response to this teaching? What is he saying to you through this hard teaching? Worship team's going to come and we're going to close with worship of Jesus, our rescuer, the one who gives us a sure hope, free from punishment. Um, and as they do, uh, let me encourage you, a great way, a great first step of obedience sometimes is to grab a friend or to come alone or to pray with one of our leaders and just come down front and pray. If God's pressing you about something, whether that is to enter into a relationship with Christ or to speak to someone of your faith in Christ or however this teaching is pressing on you to kind of consecrate it in prayer uh, before you leave. And we, we love to open up the front area and pray with you in that. So let's stand and worship God, respond with our voices, and in our prayers.